Well, we have begun the Gospel of Luke, and many, even Ronnie, has lamented we're going to be a long time. Um, Lloyd put the schedule together. If I put the schedule together, we'd be in at 18 years. So take solace in that, and uh, we are going to take a huge chunk this morning. But you know, um, it doesn't matter what book we're in, in my opinion, because uh, it's a long book, and it takes a long time to go through it. So if you're not preaching Luke, you've got to preach something. So we're going to preach Luke for a while. It's a unique introduction. Lloyd began last week so that you can know the truth. And he spent uh, last weekend explaining the first five verses. Dr. Luke has got unique language. He has more vocabulary than any other New Testament writer. His gospel is longer. The Luke and Acts record comprise more of the New Testament than even Pauline literature. He is an observer. He's a highly detailed guy. If you know the disc, he's a high C off the chart. And he uh, is intended to, by God's Holy Spirit, to put together this account that we call the Gospel of Luke. Um, today I want to do sort of what the rabbinics did uh, in, the, in the Mishnah. They would give a running commentary. Uh, you can't take apart all that we want to look, but we want to keep the story intact. So I hope you have your, your iPad open, your iPhone open, your, uh, what's the new one now? The Droid open, uh, or a real Bible. <clears throat> um, because I want you to look at this story, turn off the email and the text, and look at this story for just about 30 minutes. And it's a lot to cover. I'm going to give you three so what's as we go through it, okay? So strap on and uh, give me your attention for a while and ask God to use this passage. Um, King Herod begins our text in chapter 1, verse 5 of Judea. There are six Herods. Um, it's com- complicated to keep them all in line. But this Herod uh, is not a nice guy. He killed nine of his wives. I guess when you're a king and don't like the cooking, you just kill her. Um, and he killed nine of his wives. He was a tyrant. And Luke is saying, I want you to know the truth. Now, it's a dark time. We've got a horrible king named Herod. And in that, he moves then, this is about 37 to 4 B.C., when this Herod lived and served, he moves to introduce Zacharias and Elizabeth. The priestly pedigree of Zacharias would take a long time to explain to you. You're going to take a lot of this by faith this morning, or you're going to have to go home and study your Bible more. But the priestly pedigree from Abijah all the way down to Zacharias, this guy is Harvard, Yale, Princeton, Andover, um, University of Tennessee, all folded into one. I mean, this guy's pedigree spiritually is incredible. And it would take too long to explain all that. His wife equally. And so we have this marriage of these two extraordinarily pedigreed Jewish, and I'm going to call them believers, that enter this story under the dark time. Um, The names are important. Uh, Zacharias means Yahweh remembers, and Elizabeth is a worshiper of God. Each of them have very in complex histories we name our kids our parents name our name some name we make up some name we find in a book um, the hebrew put a characteristic and a trait and a meaning on a child they took it very seriously and so if you have this pedigree of god's character or some story or some event i have a friend some friends from nigeria that came to christ out of islam and one changed his name to god's will 
God's will. Another one, another woman changed her name to blessed. Another one changed his name to Joseph, God adds. And so people change their names for different reasons. But these names we'll talk about a little more. There are 24 divisions in the Levitical priesthood. You remember Aaron is the first priest, Moses' older brother, 2A. Aaron is the first priest. Uh, that is the Aaronic priesthood. I made the comment a couple weeks ago about Aaronic, and someone said, what's Aaronic about that? So my bad enunciation. Aaronic, Aaron's priesthood. Levi comes along. We have the tribe of the Levites, and the Levites then are the priests. So you have two bandwidths. There are 24 groups from four families to nine families that comprise each of these groups. They had a job, uh, much like we have Easter, Christmas, and New Year. There were three major feasts for the Jewish uh, calendar, and a bunch of others won't go into. And if you were a priest, you had your two-week uh, you might say your reserve duty twice a year. You went up to Jerusalem twice a year for two weeks and did your priestly duty. There were 18,000 priests at the time this story is written. So to be chosen to do what Zacharias has chosen, is it is a lottery. It's a huge deal to be chosen to do what he will do. Now, if you go back to in your mind to uh, Exodus, Aaron's wife was named Elisheba. Elisheba, El God, Elohim. Sheba, a covenant or a promise. And El Sheba, El Sheba becomes Elizabeth. And so these names have long histories, and it's very unusual that they're going to have a son and name him John. This, is like, this would be like naming a kid Bubba. <laughs> I mean, it comes from nowhere. And this lays in the story dark time tyrant of a king i want you to know the truth about what's going on these two extraordinary jewish people now verse six they're both righteous in the sight of god walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the lord this past this, this verse alone is worth about four sermons uh, the words in here righteous blameless all the commandments all the requirements uh, let me just say two things. Righteous for the Jew or the Christian is always doing the right thing in the right way. Always doing the right thing in the right way. Always obeying God's word, doing it the right thing in the right way. Blameless is without moral blame. Nothing you could pin on them. They're squeaky clean. They're almost otherworldly. We would say they're the best Jews you could possibly be, humanly speaking. Now, we are also called to be blameless. This is not just some Jewish thing. No more than well, many, many times, three in particular, we're to be blameless in Philippians 2, blameless in Ephesians 1, Ephesians 5. We're to be morally blameless. Boy, is that ever applicational. We live in, live in the most immoral culture on the planet. Probably in time, and the Internet and technology has made it something like $11 billion a year industry. It's just it's mind-numbing, the money for pornography and the relationships and experimentation sexually. Um, you and I are called to be blameless. Taken together, these two Jews, we would call them extraordinary examples of Christianity. Verse 7, but they had no child. Tyrant of a king, I want you to know the truth, tyrant of a king, very dark time. These two people with these names that are huge historically, 
living, we would say, as close to perfect as you can live before God, but, verse 7, they had no child. Because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both advanced in years. Barrenness for the Hebrew is a horrible thing. Children were a blessing. Genesis 1, Psalm 127, 128. Children are a blessing. The Hebrews saw kids as a gift to God. If you get pregnant and have a son first, you are greatly blessed. If you have many sons, you are, you are greatly blessed of God. And they understood it from Leviticus 20 and other passages that if you sinned, God would close your womb. There were certain sins that God just said, you're going to be barren. Remember Michael mocks David when he comes back dancing after he's won the Philistine battle and he's, so, he's praising God. And she said, you make a mockery of yourself. And a king. God shuts her womb. She never has children again. So there were sins that would close a woman's womb. And so you've got this righteous couple that's old and has no children. Who does that sound like? Abraham and Sarah. The parallels are striking and very important. Here's your first so what. Your problem may not be because of your sin. Your problem may not be because of your sin. There are two ways most people respond when some problem happens in life. If you're like me with a guilty, strict conscience, you go, oh, what did I do? I grew up with nuns. Forgive me, but I grew up with nuns. And the view of God was a hammer over your head waiting for you to make a mistake. Bam! Ha, 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 ha. Kind of this Machiavellian view of God. And I was always terrified. Even today, when I do something, when something happens, I go, oh, gosh, what have I done, Lord? What have I done? Now, the others of us are, you know, we have a different approach. We go, oh, I didn't do anything. Both extremes are wrong. There's a time to take an inventory. Sometimes we do. We are disciplined by God because of our sin. But other times, your sin has nothing to do with it. And that's the story. Two righteous people, but she is barren and they are old. You see, God is preparing something here. And your problem may be the very thing God is using to prepare you for something. And how you live faithfully in the midst of that promise, of that problem, is extraordinarily important to God. That's the point. I think the reason the Holy Spirit includes this is because Elizabeth's continual embarrassment, even in her old age. But we're going to find out something. Verse 8, now it happened. That while he was performing, Zacharias, his priestly service before God at the appointed order of his division, remember there's 24, according to the custom of the priestly office, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were in prayer outside the hour of the incense offering. Verse 8, the narrative changes, now it happened. Now in Pauline we have therefores, and those are like flags in the margin. In Luke, now it happened is something you need to become accustomed to. It's a very important phrase. It's more than meanwhile back at the ranch. Uh, this is a very pregnant phrase. It can mean something like something is going to happen, something came into existence, something is being made, or something is about to be born. And the word plays and the double intend rays are so rich here, now it happened. And we know it's going to happen because you know the story already. Something's about to be born. But they live with the scarlet bee, barren. The gossip and the incrimination, the mockery, why you can't have children. 
Elizabeth, you look righteous. You look like you're a priest's wife, but there's some sin in your past. That's why you have no children. And you're old, so you're never going to be able to have children. And God has, God has closed your womb because of your sin. And that mockery and gossip would have been rampant even among good Jews. Dr. Luke says, now it happened. Something's going to change. Zacharias is engaged in his semi-annual temple service. The ritual involved the morning and evening sacrifices. There are many things the rabbis and rabbinics beyond what we know in Leviticus tell us about what happened in these, these, the temple complex. 18,000 priests come up. Lottery happens. Different order, different responsibilities. Zacharias is going to go in. Exodus 30, verse 7, he's going to offer incense. This is symbolic of prayer. Now, when I was, uh, how many of you raised Catholic? Raise your hand, be proud, be bold. How many of you were altar boys? Hoo-ah. Hoo-ah. I was an altar boy. I was taller than the rest of the pack, so I had the joy of either holding the high mass, the big cross, or the incense. Now, the incense was this, I don't know, copper brass thing with a chain and a couple rings on it. And uh, there was a briquette about that big around, like a hockey puck you put in it, and it had gunpowder in it, and you lit it with the match. Now, when you're about eight years old, this is really cool. And it, it catches on fire, and by the time you go to Mass, it's like a one, one briquette that's perfect for like cooking a really tiny steak. Okay, It's a little briquette that's it's, 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 uh, coal, charcoal. And then you hold this thing the whole time, and then the priest comes along during the high Mass at the proper time, and, he, and you open the top of it, and he takes a, a, about three tablespoons of what amounts to like a, a pipe tobacco and dumps it on that briquette and puts it down. And it billows this odor that is unique to all the planet. And if I was to do that right now, within about 10 seconds, the very corners of this room would be able to smell it. It's the most pervasive smell. In fact, when I walk by a Catholic church today and catch a whiff of it, I'm eight years old on my knees. Uh, these olfactory hallucinations of holding that. And then, and then he would take it, and he would go, ka-ching, 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 four corners of the room. And then I had to hold the rest of the mass. It was really kind of fun. Now, what, what the priest is doing is very important. It's a Levitical priesthood issue. He is offering incense to put up the prayers of the room. So the Catholics did a good thing by saying, this is, this is the purification. We're incense. We're offering this prayer. So Zacharias has this job. Now, the angel appears, verse 11, and the word appear is only used in the sense of a real legitimate appearance. There's visions, there's dreams, and there are appearances. When you read appearances, that means there's somebody physically there. The angel is an extraordinary messenger, with an extraordinary message. That's why angels show up. Verse 13, the angel's message to Zacharias. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. Now, if you're a person who writes in your Bible, I don't think you can write on your iPad, but if you write in your Bible, uh, I would circle all the words will, and I'm going to overemphasize them as I read them. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you will give him the name John you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth for he will be great in the sight of the Lord and he will drink no wine or liquor and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit 
while yet in his mother's womb, and he will turn many people, many of the sons of Israel, back to the Lord their God. It is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous. So as, why? So as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Each of these wills is chock full of impact. The petition's heard. Now, Zacharias is, is praying a prayer that I'll tell you what he's praying in a minute. But what would the prayer have Zacharias and Elizabeth been for years? To get pregnant, to have a son. But he's old. So there's a number of things going on here that are quite playful in the text, and we'll talk about them. Elizabeth will bear you a son. You will name him John. Again, this, where's John come from? You name him Elisha or Zacharias or Bet Zacharias. Or, you don't name him John. Where does this foul ball come from? You'll have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice. You're going to be an old man with a baby on your knee, and you're going to be so happy. This young couple on the back morning with their baby and their little thing, you know. Nothing like a baby. You've been infertile. You can't have a child. You get pregnant. Wow. Joy and gladness. He'll be great in the sight of the Lord. One of the most chilling passages in Luke is Luke 7, 28, where Jesus, when he talks about John, says, there is no one greater than John. That ought to give you goosebumps. Jesus picks out this crazy. He's crazy. He is a weird dude. And Jesus, the God-man, says, there's nobody greater. He's great in the sight of God, and Jesus even said so, if you wondered. And he's great in the sight of man, because people, by the thousands, will go out to see him in the wilderness, and Jesus will mock him. Would you come out and see a reed shaking in the wind? No, you came out to see John. The last Old Testament prophet, the first New Testament one. Perfect ministry, extraordinary man that God uses. He will drink no wine or liquor. He will be, will be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, we have to talk about this for a minute because people always ask, um, <clears throat> should we not drink wine and liquor because people like John and the Nazarite vows and so forth. Now, Ephesians 5.18, jot it down in your margin. Ephesians 5.18 is the most helpful verse and the most, unfortunately, misapplied verse in this subject. Ephesians 5.18 says, Do not be drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Now, when you look at these two references here, drink no wine or liquor, he'll will be filled with the Holy Spirit. It's the same thing Paul is teaching in Ephesians 5.18. What's the point? If I take a glass of wine and I drink it to excess, before long, that external substance will control me and I will be out of control. The intoxication of the liquor or wine will make me lose control, and I will do things I would not normally do. I will say things I would not normally say. I will, I will be drunk. The external substance has affected me, and I am now intoxicated. Don't be controlled by wine. That is dissipation, but be filled by the Spirit. And notice, he will be filled. He's going to be controlled by God's Spirit. So the point is not liquor and wine are sin. The point is, don't let an external substance control your affections. Rather, let the very person of God who indwells in you control you. And he's going to personify that. 
And that's why he's going to be odd, unusual, because all that he does is going to be controlled by God's Spirit. He will turn many of the sons of Israel back. He will go as a forerunner. God is going to use him like Elijah. Each of these rich texts, he is going to come to announce to the Jew about the Messiah coming. Very important to understand, the Baptist baptism is not the same as after his. The Baptist baptism is for the Jewish nation to come back to the Jewish way of life. They've worshipped idols, they're immoral, they're not following sacrifice, they're not going up for sacrifice, they're not giving a tenth to the Levitical priest, they're not tithing their, their first fruits, they're not doing what the law requires of them. And John the Baptist comes as this odd guy, this crazy guy, born of an old couple of an extraordinarily priestly pedigree, and his job is to tell them, repent because your king's coming. Jews come back to living righteously, that's the word in the text, and he's going to be like Elijah. He's going to have a power that's extraordinary. The scribes and Pharisees can't, can't debate him. He's too smart. People come out. He has disciples that follow him. Thousands of people went out to see this guy, John, as he pro- prophesied, get ready because he's coming. Tyrant of a king, extraordinarily righteous, good couple, barren and old, They're going to have a son that's going to pave the way for Jesus. Now, if you were in the first century hearing this story, you'd be sitting on the edge of your seat. We know the Bible too well, but not deeply enough. And the the first century believer would be going, I mean, tell us what's going to happen. You got to, I mean, there's so many things going on. This tyrant, the, the country is being ruled by the worst president ever. He killed nine wives and got away with it. He's corrupt. He's a tyrant. He'll kill you with a wink. And this righteous couple, doing minding their own business, is living righteously and blamelessly. And he's chosen by lottery out of 18,000 some priests, and his division, let's just call it 9,000 priests, to go in and do this thing. Zacharias was not to be afraid. This was good news. Now, I don't think Zacharias at this stage in life is praying for a son. I don't. But we know from Leviticus, there was a prayer that you were to pray when you offered the incense. And the rabbinics, the rabbis who continued this practice, continued this very prayer. And their prayer was this, for the salvation of Israel. So when he put that incense on the altar, his prayer And he's a pious pedigreed priest. Don't forget it. He's an extraordinarily good man when it comes to knowing the law. And he prays for the salvation of Israel. How is God going to answer that prayer? Zacharias, you're part of the process. I've answered your prayer. And you're going to have a son. And your son is going to announce the way of the salvation of Israel. This would blow the first century Jews' mind to hear these stories. Don't yawn at the Bible, please, ever. Ought to be the most compelling book you ever crack. So, what's he do? He's terrified. Second, so what? Faith should move us from fear to joy. 
when you're in the middle of a problem that you can't figure out and you don't understand why God's doing it and you've asked for forgiveness of sin and you're fairly certain, as certain as we can be, that it's not sin and you got this huge problem in your heart and your soul and your life, this very problem that controls you, you need to have trust in Christ to move you from fear to joy. This message, he should have been the happiest guy on the planet. And we're going to soon see he's not. But whatever your challenge is, your faith in Christ can move you from fear to joy. That's some of the stuff Kurt will talk about, retraining your brain so you don't automatically think, oh no, what's going to happen? We should be the most joyful people on the planet. Zacharias doubt, verse 18. Zacharias said to the angel, How will I know this for certain? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. Who asked a question like this? Abraham. The parallels are striking. You're going to have descendants. It's like the sand of the sea, the stars in the heavens, innumerable descendants. We're getting old, God. So they tried to usurp God's plan, and you have Ishmael. And you have Islam. If only Abraham would have thought twice. And then you have Isaac. And Isaac is born in their old age. A Abram, Gideon, Hezekiah, Ahaz, many people ask this question. This is not a precedent. So why is the consequence so heavy? Well, here's what we know about the text. Gabriel knows Zacharias' real motivation, and we're going to see it in the verses following. We can ask the question of God, why, and it not be a bad question, as we'll see in Mary's, the so-called Magnificat. Mary asked the question, why, and he, she wasn't hammered. There were no consequences. But Zacharias is in trouble. Look in the text, verse 19. The angel answered and said to him, Now, I wish I had James Earl voice, Jones' voice again. I just, you know, that's my prayer God has not answered. Give me James Earl Jones' voice, please. Um, I am Gabriel. I think it was loud. I think it blew him back on the ground. I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God. What do you mean, how are you going to know? I'm the most extraordinary messenger God ever created, sent to you with an extraordinary message, and you doubt me? God sent me to tell you this, Zacharias. Are you an idiot? That's in the Greek. <laughs> I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you, to bring you this good news. And behold, you shall be silent and unable to speak until the day when these things take place, because you did not believe my words. You see, this wasn't a question of verification or like a Gideon question. You don't believe me which will be fulfilled in their proper time. The people were waiting for Zacharias and wondering at his delay at the temple. This is humorous. I mean, they're outside going, what? Is he dead? What has happened? Why isn't he out yet? But when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. This is the Pictionary version, Zacharias. He's coming out going... He can't talk. I mean, you got to see some humor in this. He's coming out. I mean, what was he doing? Throwing himself on the ground, shaking in terror, 
flapping angel. I don't know what he's doing, but he's trying to tell them, I just saw an angel named Gabriel, and he told me this. He can't talk about it. When the days for his priestly service were ended, he went back home. After these days, Elizabeth, his wife, became pregnant. And she kept herself in seclusion for five months, saying, This is the way the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked with favor upon me to take away my disgrace among men. I am Gabriel. Who are you to doubt the word of God? Elizabeth's reaction is really extraordinary in verses 24 and 25. Just like Hannah, just like Sarah, eventually they conceive in their old age, defying the odds, showing the miraculous nature of God. Why she's kept in seclusion? Many speculations. Many think, well, she worried about the pregnancy and miscarrying. You know, if God told you something, you're probably not going to miscarry. And let's just get that on the table. You know, if, if an angel shows up and says your wife's going to have a baby, she's probably not going to miscarry. So why does she do it? If we had the time, I would argue, I will say it, take it by faith or question me, that's fine. What is she, what is she saying? Look at this. This is the way God's dealt with me in my old age. She's a pious, wonderful, we'd say godly woman. And you know what she did? She hunkered down with the Lord for the first five months, blown away that at her old age, God would let her get pregnant. We might call it a retreat of a kind. And it's worship because her name is a worshiper of Yahweh, Elisheba, Elizabeth. True to her character. Joy, he removed her pain. There's a phrase in the Gospels about God visiting his people that is chock full of meaning as well. And God has visited Elizabeth. God will visit Mary. The visitation brings redemption for the people of the Jewish nation. Now here's an individual minding their own theological business, trying to be righteous and good in the sight of God. And God says, I'm going to use you individually for the nation Israel. So what, number three? No one can thwart God's plan for your life. No one or no thing can thwart God's plan for your life. So you have a problem. You have a struggle in your marriage. You've been through a divorce. You have a child who's breaking your heart. You just got a pathology report that's scaring you to death. You got to have treatments. You got difficulty at work. You're unemployed. You can't find the boyfriend or girlfriend you want. You're having tough staying pure morally as a teenager. Pornography is eating your lunch. You're worried about your money. You're greedy. You're gambling. You live in a world of lust, of passion, and power. You're an entertainer in the industry, and everything's thrown at you from drugs to pornography to women to men. How do you live faithfully? By the power of God's Spirit. And what you need to see in the far bigger picture is not just you and me and our little problems, but two people living faithfully with a red B on them, barren. And at the end of that long line, God's blowing their minds. Now, you nor I will probably have a son like John. But your child might be an incredible voice to a culture. You might be an incredible voice to your industry. You see, I think the irony is so obvious we miss it. If I live with chronic pain, you know who I spend most of my time talking to? People with chronic pain. 
If you've had breast cancer, you know who you spend your time talking to? Other women with breast cancer. If you have infertility, you know who you talk to? Other women who are infertile. If you've lost a child or a spouse or a close friend, who do you talk to? People who've lost a child, a spouse, or a close friend. If you've lost a business or lost your shirt or gone bankrupt, who do you talk to? People who've gone through the same thing. You got it? It's not that hard. Here's the question. Do you see this as preparation? For how he will use you and is using you. You see, the faithfulness is easy when life's going well. It's when life is in the drink and in the toilet and knocking your slats out that it's hard. And that's when we need God's Spirit. How is He preparing your life through your issues so that you can proclaim Christ? Because you as an individual, me as an individual, have responsibility even through pain, even through problems, even through disappointments. That is the fertile ground that God is using. Nothing, nothing can thwart God's will for your life.